I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to a podcast exclusive edition of our program. I'm delighted to welcome Professor of Law Jennifer Taub. She was until recently Vermont Law School professor, and she'll be starting at Western New England University School of Law this fall. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor, what was most striking to you about the tax records cases that were recently decided at the Supreme Court? What was most striking to me is that there was a unanimous Supreme Court, nine to zero. So all of the justices actually agreed on one critical point, and that was that despite Donald Trump's dreams of you know, an authoritarian dictatorship or some kind of monarchy, he does not have absolute power. In other words, they decided that he does not have absolute immunity from having to respond to criminal subpoenas in state cases, even those involving him. This case really was about the rule of law, as you're alluding to, it was about whether Trump is a king or whether he's president as we've understood our presidents, according to Justice Marshall. And that is whom uh, Chief Justice Roberts cites in his decision. However, the decisions do not enable the immediacy of public disclosure in the way the Nixon tapes case. Now, it's not quite analogous to that in the sense that the tax records or company records from Trump, the Trump organization are not um, the, necessarily the, within the purview of this executive branch during the term of Donald Trump's presidency. Does that explain why there is not both the legal and uh, public opinion to support mass demonstrations until these records are, are in fact uh, visible to us. Let me let me kind of break that apart first, addressing um, you know the, what the court did, and then separately talking about your very compelling question about why aren't people in the streets? Um, and in fact, let me actually flip it around. People are in the streets. I, what we can see now is the Black Lives Matter movement is a really important one, and people are in the streets trying to protest ongoing uh, systemic racism and the increasing uh, rise of white supremacy. And I see that as as an indictment of Donald Trump. Now, of course, we're a country with a history of racism in our roots, but Trump embodies and wants to enshrine this kind of, um, you know, police brutality used to um, hurt any of his enemies and to, you know, perpetuate white supremacy and also to use the justice system to, um, to pervert it so that anyone who is his friend or ally does not have to follow the law. So to be clear, I think what's happening in the streets is bigger than Trump and something that's really critical. Um, and in terms of specifically, um, you know, what, why these materials aren't coming out right now, what, you know, the, 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 the most striking case, the one that I mentioned that had one portion that was nine to zero, which is Trump v. Vance, is a case which overall was a majority, so seven to two. And in that case, 
we were talking about a the New York County District Attorney Cy Vance accessing um, these tax returns and records that you mentioned to get them from Trump's accounting firm because he has been for two years um, working on a criminal investigation of Trump and his business organizations. And so ultimately, um, the court completely dismissed Donald Trump's argument, you know, again, that he has absolute immunity. And then also seven to two decided that there isn't even any kind of heightened need standard that, um, that, that Vance has to show that Trump is, is just like an ordinary citizen in that respect in, um, in terms of having to respond to a grand jury subpoena. Now, Vance, neither Vance nor all of us get those materials, that evidence he needs right away. He's got to go back to the trial court now, but that should not take very long at all because Trump has some remaining arguments which are very narrow that he's unlikely to be able to meet. You know, he'd have to establish that somehow his accounting firm handing over these materials interferes with him carrying out his duties, and that's just not going to happen. So Vance should should get the materials he needs. And in the other case, um, you know, even if, if Congress had um, the financial records um, and bank records and possibly tax returns that the three different committees are seeking, um, I'm not sure that they would necessarily share all the details with the public right away anyhow. But I really applaud the Supreme Court on that 7-2 decision because they, this was the first time they ever addressed the question of whether Congress, um, whether the House subpoena was something, um, House subpoena of, of a sitting president exceeded their, their power. And it doesn't, but there are some conditions on it. And I think it's very good. We need to think into the future. What if it were a president that we thought was following the law? Maybe, you know, I happen to be a Democrat. What if it was a, a Democratic president that I thought was doing a good job? Um, and let's say the, the House was, you know, former, you know, or was people who were, were just hell-bent on um, harassing them, right? But, now, in that situation, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense to have the standard, the four-part test, the Supreme Court set down um, that will be addressed now when it goes back down. Um, one last point on that is that, you know, the reason why this was the first time the Supreme Court ever looked at this is other presidents have cooperated. Right. This goes back to Trump believing he is above the law. But I do think it's right to balance, to consider the separation of powers. Um, so I don't think it's time to hit the streets because the Supreme Court declared, you know, because because I mean, in one case, it was a complete victory over Trumpism. I'm, I'm excited about that and I don't want to protest that. And as for the, the second opinion, as I mentioned, I think it's a very sensible one supporting the rule of law. And again, just to reiterate, I think it's great that people are in the streets right now for Black Lives Matter. Right. And it's important that you are differentiating the origin of the protest. It is a lot of the social and economic inequities that have been exposed and that predate the pandemic. Um, but there has not been the kind of active engagement on the tax records. There is pending legislation in Congress to ensure that all future presidents or presidential nominees have to disclose their returns. Um, it's, it's not something that has sparked or ignited a, a movement, but- Oh, the, wait a the, second. 
Yes. It actually has. I mean, we started, we launched the tax march in uh, January of 2017 and more than 120,000 people nationwide, including giant marches in Washington, DC and New York. Um, that's where that giant inflatable chicken um, uh, was displayed. There is that movement. And in fact, tax march continued in expanded its vision, not just asking um, to see Trump's tax returns, but also we um, expanded to consider the Trump tax and to um, call for a more equitable tax system that's progressive. We oppose the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the tax scam um, and so on. So we've continued. You're right. Um, get, you know, right now, um, in this particular moment, you know, people are wary about being outside um, and going to, going to protests. Um, but I think in time, we will, you know, we will see, um, we'll see those tax records. We will see, um, we, we will see the financial records. And, you know, we, we pretty much know based on New York Times reporting two things. One, he, he and his family were probably engaged in fraud affecting in today's dollars for $400 million. And what you may remember is no one really cared when that piece was published. It was one of the most impressive pieces of investigative journalism. And now we, can't, we have found out that Mary Trump was the source, right, for that article. But it's so, it's so overwhelming to people. Um, yeah, it's just reaffirming that we knew he was, is and was, and probably will always be a cheat. But I think, you know, that reality, as we get closer and closer to the election is supplanted by the fear that not enough voters will turn out to oppose him or a bigger fear that there'll be election interference in some fashion so that we won't get an accurate vote. Right, and, and there has been a movement, it hasn't catalyzed in the streets with, with the same press attention or the same ongoing, um, at this point, sort of the ongoing lobbying. Having said that, one of the omissions in the Mueller investigation was connecting Trump's pre-candidacy activity and behavior um, and financial records being integral in determining um, whether or not he was representing American interests or Russian interests. And so for those who found the Mueller report ultimately inconclusive or not, not comprehensive enough in addressing sort of the underlying question for there was collusion, there was that activity, uh, can we understand the, the personal benefits? How much do you think the, the evaluation of this most recent Supreme Court case will inform the way we look at um, the future Mueller case at the court and also a potential emoluments case at the court? Well, at, at this point, I mean, when you're then thinking about the Mueller case um, and thinking about um, the, the case where Don um, McGrath refuses to um, honor the congressional subpoena, I think this, that could be affected. Um, and in terms of further on the, on the Mueller uh, point, not the emoluments point, but on, on the Mueller point, 
um, first. You know, Mueller was, you know, pretty much sidelined by Barr. I think the report, at least part of it, was more damning um, than people acknowledge because of Barr's spinning of it. But also, you're, you're so right, and it's important to note that Mueller did honor that so-called red line um, that Trump didn't want cross, which was to dig into his personal family and business finances. And the most, you know, the place to look is Deutsche Bank. And of course, one of the subpoenas is uh, for Deutsche Bank to produce records. And so I think, you know, ultimately, it's gonna, we're going to know a lot more um, about all of this, um, hopefully, you know, when he's out of office. Um, but we should also remember that whatever Cy Vance is investigating falls under his authority as, you know, as a county um, prosecutor to enforce New York state criminal law. And no one can, no one, in, no president, not Donald Trump, and if he were to resign just before he left office, not even, you know, Pence as president could pardon him for whatever it is um, that, uh, that Vance might choose to prosecute him for. It's beyond, it's beyond them. So this could live longer. Of course, if he's reelected, some of the statutes of limitation um, might, might um, you know, run out. But have no fear. Um, Trump is quite capable of committing more um, arguably, arguable criminal offenses. And so the clock will restart with him again, no doubt. You sound uh, not, not terrified, but, but concerned that there won't be the accountability that we so richly need on November 3rd, and that some of the criminal activities that have been in plain sight and some that are behind closed doors uh, may enable him to win re-election, uh, something we discussed in a recent episode with Sarah Kenzior. Um, is that is that an accurate sense that uh, of of uh, fear or concern on your part? Sure. I mean, you know, I think that he will lose in November, but there's of course, you know, a great chance. Um, you know, I think that right, but the, you know, there are some odds in his favor, and he has been willing in the past to violate election law. And he really has almost nothing to lose at the federal level because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion, where it's been announced he can't be indicted while he's sitting in office. So at this point, um, I do believe in some respect he thinks he's above the law. And therefore, what is so thrilling about yesterday's or about the, the recent um, Supreme Court decision in the, in the Vance case is, you know, it, when it comes to the states and local governments, he can be held to account. So um, it's, it's clear that they would be able to, no, nowhere did the Supreme Court say they couldn't indict under state law. So if there were someone willing to indict while he was, if he were reelected, presumably um, the case could, even if a court decided, um, you know, it, it would interfere with him being in office to defend himself, um, perhaps the filing of the indictment would toll the statute of limitations and it conti could continue when he gets out of office. But all of this is so speculative. Um, I'm very much hoping um, that he loses in November and that we don't have to worry about that. Could you envision a scenario, Professor, in which the Supreme Court is ruling not on a technicality regarding voting rights, um, because there is a clear electoral college victory, 
or perhaps there is not a clear electoral college victory because of efforts to delegitimize or to criminalize balloting in some way. But could you foresee a scenario in which it's not um, about the chads in Florida, it's, but it's about the allegation of uh, Donald Trump manipulating the results in some way. It's hard to fathom because it's a state system, states are in control of their own elections. Um, perhaps he would, he would claim that the election results were not legitimate and the court would have to get involved. But is there some scenario that is not sort of on the technical grounds of, you know, the Wisconsin vote or the Florida vote that you could envision the court having to step in and, and, uh, decide the election? You mean like a Bush v. Gore situation? Well, a situation where, I mean, just again, knowing that the, the Catherine Harris shenanigans are on steroids here. So th there could be a more comprehensive attempt to suppress or criminalize voting in some way that leads to depressed turnout. I don't I know. I don't, I don't see, I honestly don't see that, but, you know, of course anything is possible and, you know, we can worry about all sorts of things. And usually, um, you know, usually you've turned the stove off before you've driven away from your house. You know what I mean? So I'm not somebody who tends to, I mean, I have a vivid imagination, but I don't entertain things that seem like they're highly unlikely, but you know, any, anything's possible. That's, that's not my worry. I'm more concerned that he loses and, um, you know, has a major tantrum at our expense. Well, that, that of course, and I, I speculate and hypothesize only in so far as, right, this was a case, as Joyce Vance and you have said, and the justices seem to underscore, that no one could have imagined if you followed the respect for law of prior presidents, including presidents that, um, you know, might have taken issue with congressional subpoenas, but worked it out. And this was the first instance in which it didn't happen. But let me ask you as a final question. And, and again, that, that's the, the derivation of my question to you. You know, could there be a case, a, a new case law that's, that's not about counting chads, but about sort of some other criminal enterprise involving the election? Uh, we, we can't really speculate, but let me ask you this as a final question. The, the case as it was argued, um, the, the lawyer for the city, uh, for the district attorney, uh, was far more compelling if you listen to the oral arguments than the lawyer for, for the house. Um, is, and I say that sort of objectively, and you can certainly uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's sort of a fair objective analysis if you listen to them. It, was it because of the unprecedented circumstance of having to set up a standard for something that had already been accepted. Of course, you have to comply with a congressional subpoena. Why was the congressional lawyer seemingly not as not as effective as as he should be? And and secondly, if if the if the person arguing for the House for for Pelosi and her chairman and women committee members had been more persuasive, could the decision have been stronger in some way? to affect greater change uh, sooner and force compliance sooner? You know, it's such a great question about what could have been done before the decision came out. I mean, I might go back even further 
to the um, to the lower courts and kind of passing this along without probing a little further about some sort of limiting principle that they might want to establish so that it wasn't just this open-ended, I can just say as a member of Congress or a committee that I have a legitimate legislative purpose and that's that, right? It seemed obvious at oral argument, um, as you're noting, um, that the lawyer um, arguing on behalf of Congress um, will keep getting these questions about, but what's your limiting principle and not really have much to offer. But it didn't really matter in the end because even if he'd had one, the court wasn't going to just let Congress um, have the have the records they wanted because no one below had, none of the courts below had applied whatever thing that, you know, Doug Letter would have cooked up there. So no matter what, even if Letter had been on, you know, on his toes and came up with the very same four-part test the Supreme Court wanted, we would have said, well, that's really smart. And he seems, you know, really decisive and what a, what a winning argument, but this case would have still been remanded. So in fairness to him, he was kind of trapped because if he came up with the limiting principle they were desperately asking him for, the case would have been remanded and then everyone would have said it's his fault. <laughs> so it was, he was in a bit of a tough spot having to deal with the record that he had. I guess it was a tricky position and, and I, maybe we should forgive him for his lack of preparation or, or eloquence or something. Um, but, um, but, but, Ultimately, that question of, of relating it to, to Nixon and the t Watergate tapes case, um, I just, again, want to close on this. The, you're describing the process by which Vance can obtain this and present it to the grand jury secretly. And, and there seems to be more obstacles for Congress to access the material and and it seems like that wouldn't happen until after the election so you describe it as a strong decision or a set of decisions for the rule of law but in your mind could it have been more ironclad so i think you know i think in terms of the trump v vance case you know it's a complete victory for for the rule of law and a slap down to trump's notion that he is um, entitled to this absolute immunity. There's a question people are asking as to why didn't the court just order Mazers right now um, to release the materials um, and not require um, you know, a lower court to make a determination um, that, you know, that it, it wouldn't, inter you know, to listen to Trump's arguments. I mean, that, that's possible. Um, they could have done that. There are some theories that Roberts wanted to get seven to two. Like he didn't want to have a five, four decision. And perhaps the only way he could get, you know, that sort of stronger voice, the seven to two. Um, and then of course they get nine to zero on the other part, but the only way he could have gotten that is by allowing for the remand. That might be possible. You know, I'm not, I wasn't in the room where it happened. Um, but I think, you know, I know others may not agree with me, but I expected exactly the outcome we saw here. So um, I'm really pleased with it. Um, and I think You did that call it. You called it. And uh, <laughs> you should have had some reassurance that you could have been in the room where it happened. Uh, Jennifer Taub, <laughs> Professor of Law, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend.